Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we sit down and talk with marketing thought leaders and experts on the issues and topics of interest to marketers and business leaders everywhere. Today I'm in Melbourne at the Club of United Business and sitting down with Annette Sharp, Director of China Digital, the China Visitor Experience Agency. Welcome, Annette. Thank you for having me, Darren. So, look, the first thing I'd like to say is a visitor experience agency. What's a visitor experience agency? A visitor experience agency is an agency that focuses not just on the marketing role, but also on understanding the consumer's experience with a product or um, with um, an experience, a destination. So we try and understand the whole experience, not just, you know, the one or two way communication, not just pushing messages out to them or. Okay, so look, that's really interesting because I kept thinking this was about tourism. But what you're saying is it's actually about the whole experience. You're actually talking about brand as being the summation of the total experience of a brand product or destination. Absolutely. So beyond product, um, I think that's what um, Chinese customers are looking for. So when they go shopping, it's not just the products that they're buying, it's the whole experience of shopping. It's you know, from the practical, you know, payment systems, um, how easy it is to get it back to China, um, and you know, to the, um, you know, the cerebral where they actually are engaging with people, being able to use the English language, yeah, um, to what they, they look they, like. They are the culture or the country of the e-commerce, aren't they? Oh, completely. Yep. Um, it's a really interesting thing when you go over to China. That's how you tell tourists in China, the ones that pull out cash, the ones that carry wallets. In China, you do not need to leave your house with anything but your mobile phone. Yeah, exactly. Because of uh, all of the different uh, mobile payment systems like WeChat Pay, Alipay. Well, there's quite a few now, isn't there? They're the main two. Yeah, they're the main two. Um, Union Pay was, I guess, what we would have thought of like our bank card. Yeah, they, that was the old way yep, of doing it. Yep. Yeah, and then uh, WeChat and Alipay came out with their um, their payment systems. Really interesting with, WeCh- with WeChat. Everyone thinks it's a social platform. It's actually a lifestyle e-commerce platform. Mm. They started with an e-commerce um, proposition and then built social on top of it. So really they're you know, incredibly smart the way they've done business, which is why they don't rely on an advertising model. You can advertise with WeChat for sure, but that's not their bread and butter. Their bread and butter is WeChat, money sitting in WeChat wallets. See, it's interesting that you say that because I get tired of you know, hearing people in the West talking about how China's the copy country. In actual fact, they were miles ahead, weren't they? The idea of starting off with a payment gateway and building a social platform on top of it um, is just so far ahead of where we are. Well, everyone's trying to catch up with them now. Everyone's yeah. trying to, you know, um, fit or you know, force fit e-commerce models into social models, which they're struggling with. And it actually has a huge impact, doesn't it, for the Chinese? Because you know, I know um, traveling in China, the you know, even a street vendor 
you will have a QR code yep. and there's no cash. You just scan the QR code and, and put in the number and then the money's transferred into their account. Yeah. One of the really interesting things that happened in Melbourne last year was Alipay trialled a, um, a QR code-led payment system for buskers. Mm. So, oh. yeah, so buskers could were busking on the street that had a QR code and um, anyone that had Alipay could scan and pay the busker. So that was a world first. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, and that's co- really common in China. In fact, some um, some operators don't even take cash now. Well, um, on that basis, at least they wouldn't have to. As a busker, you wouldn't have to worry about someone stealing that's your hat right. with yes. the money in yes, it. Running off. They'd have to steal your mobile phone. Yeah. And then try and uh, find a way of getting into your yes, account, which they can't do because the you know cybersecurity around that stuff is really tight. One of the things I liked about WeChat was that the way they incorporated things that are particularly Chinese. And my favourite thing was the red envelope, mm-hmm. right? And it was quite funny because it's traditional in China to give money yep. at for holidays and, and you know, uh, particular, you know, um, birthdays and yep. things like that. But uh, it was funny to see people using WeChat and someone would send a red envelope out to a group of friends and they'd all be busy trying to claim it, even though it might mean that they only got one yen. Yeah, that's right, 20 cents. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, But they were so excited because it was it gamified yes. what was a very traditional thing to do. Look, and I think that's really yeah, understanding the culture of Chinese. I think that, you know, the Chinese do love to get surprise packets and you know that's why they you know love gift with purchase they love um all the little extra things that they get from you know culturally you know they they have it on their birthdays they have it you know at weddings they have it you know they have little you know special surprise packets all over the place that's a, that's quite an insight because a lot of people think of the chinese as only purchasing on price yes you know the, to negotiate the lowest possible deal but in actual fact they do understand that value could be a gift with purchase yes. or just something extra yep that makes them feel like you know that this is important and there's a recognition as a customer, yep. that they're being recognised and given that that special gift. Yes. So I don't think if you have a look at the Chinese spending patterns, I don't think anyone will um, would accuse the Chinese of being um, you know, cheap shoppers anymore. You know, they are prepared to spend. They are prepared to invest in things of value. Mm. Um, they will spend money. You see that with the prices that they will pay for you know, organic product in China. Um, you know, for the Daigo sending over um, product that is, you know, priced according to... According okay, to so you mentioned Daigos. Um, for those that don't know, how would you describe a Daigo? Uh, uh, what is Daigo? So Daigo basically is someone that shops on behalf of somebody else. That's the literal interpretation the literal, of the word yep. or and the it, phrase yep. Daigo. And it is actually the process as well. Mm. So Daigos are... are defined as anyone that shops on behalf of somebody else. So it could be a uni student who is shopping on behalf of their family and taking it and back friends. to China and friends. Yeah. Or it could be a professional Daigo who actually has a circle of customers and will shop to order. And these uh, do vary in size, you know, as you yep. say, from individuals that are doing it on a personal basis through to, in fact, there's a um, publicly listed company there is. in there Australia. Is. Yep. Uh, AU Make. AU Make, yep. that's it. 
Yep, so that's one. There's also dogosales.com, which is another platform, yep. a Dogo sales platform. I think it's it's hard to work out how many Dogos there actually are. There's a range, it, the, the number ranges from 40,000 to 200,000 as an estimate. Yep. Um, I would suggest that the 200,000 are incorporates all the little guys that are, you know, buying things for people they know back home. Um, but there's whole um, postage, you know, distribution centres set up. Because yeah. it's it interesting. The thing we um, in Australia have probably noticed is all those stories about uh, Chinese shoppers lining up and buying, you know, tins of powdered milk from yep. Coles and Woolies and the outrage about how that's taking it away. And in fact, there was recently a Chinese warship in Sydney Harbour where they were <laughs> photographed taking baby powder, milk powder on board, and they're by saying the that, that we're by the crateful, <laughs> and that's the secret, uh, yeah. the secret mission that they were sent on. But in actual fact, um, it's got so sophisticated now yes. that there are distribution centres that can be on the high street or even in big warehouses. Yep that are doing direct deals with the manufacturers, yep. getting their inventory, and then the individuals are coming in and saying, I want that, and I do that, and, I, and please bundle it up and send it yep. to um, to China, to yeah. this person in yeah. China. Also, the logistics are you know, mind-boggling as to how this all works because you know, you're talking about not just one product, you're talking about a whole collection. It's mm. almost you know, like a mini supermarket shopping centre. And even I read uh, recently Australia Post is trialling uh, specialty centres that allow people to uh, package and send to China. Yeah, so Australia Post have been quite um, innovative with the way they've approached China. So they have a shop on Taobao um, and, um, oh, sorry, on Tmall and Australian product can actually, um, Australian businesses can place their product in the Australia Post shop. So um, just for those people that aren't aware, um, the difference between Taobao and Tmall, because, you know, often people throw those words around and while they're owned by one company, they're actually quite different, aren't yes. they? Yes, they are. So Tmall is for international products and it's like having a shop front, um, whereas Taobao is for... Um, enormous volumes of product. So I guess if you were going to equate it, which is really tricky because it isn't really an equivalent here, but um, it's probably, you know, Amazon versus, I guess, eBay. Mm. Um, the other way it was explained to me, you know, in China was that Tmall is where brands, mm -hmm. and you can be reasonably assured that it is the brand providing it, whereas Taobao is just any manufacturer. Yep. And so a brand, you know, it may sound like a brand and look like a brand, but it may not actually be that brand. Now, they've tried to clean it up. They have done a lot of work. But there is a big difference between the two. Yeah. Because sometimes you're buying things that have no brand at all. Yes. So, yeah, so I guess it's the, you know, the, the person that would produce, um, you know, earphones and camera cords and a whole lot of different stuff would sell all their stuff on Taobao. Whereas, you know, a Sony would have a shop on Tmall. Yeah. And it's that sense of it's then going to be coming from that brand. And so we'll often have a premium yes. attached to it. Yes. Yes. So if you want cheap stuff, you go to Taobao and, man, it's cheap. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, very cheap. Yeah. And you know, I've I've been the beneficiary of <laughs> lots of uh, lots of little tr- trinkets and things on uh, things Cowbell. that you don't need. Well, <laughs> or, or things that uh, you you want, and uh, they're very cheap, but they may not necessarily last that long. That's why you buy two or three of them because <laughs> you can afford to. Yes, and you know, those are the things that are delivered. You know, you order them at midnight; they're delivered to your door at nine a.m. the next day. And so it's because of that, and you know, people that uh, Westerners that go to Hong Kong and go across to Shenzhen and buy their uh, uh, fake bags and things like that, you know, fake uh, luxury brands, but they're actually more for the Westerner Absolutely, yeah. than they are for the Chinese because yeah. the Chinese don't want fake no. brands, do they? No, and it's, it's interesting. Some of the um, places that are well known for selling fake brands, um, the actual product is not very cheap anymore. I don't, I'm not, they, they try and produce it so closely to the brand that they're selling you know, handbags for four, five, six hundred dollars Australian mm. when you can buy the real thing for, you know. Five or six thousand. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, ten times yeah. as much. Yeah, but you have to knock on the door to get into those places and yeah. you have to know where they are. And um, so I, I, I think that they're really, you know, you don't see the markets and markets of fake products anymore in the big cities in China. So on that basis, you would have to say that the Chinese shopper has become more more sophisticated. Very, in that, more discerning, that, definitely. Yeah, more discerning. In that, if they perceive something to have value, then they're happy to pay for it. Yep. So, you know, prestige brands like the Chanel's and the Louis Vuitton's, and they, they're happy to pay for that because there is something that they perceive as the value of that. You know, they also, I think China's still the biggest market for the prestige luxury cars. Yep. Like the, you know, the Maserati and the uh, Lamborghini and, and all of those cars. Yeah. So the rise of the middle class and the, and the super wealthy in China are willing to invest in those brands and pay. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting about um, the Chinese is that everyone appreciates those brands. So if somebody has... A, um, a high value car or handbag, no, everyone else is pleased for them. Everyone else is happy that they they know that they've sacrificed something to get it. I know there's a lot of um, you know girls in China that will save and save and save you know their money to buy um, an expensive handbag, and when they do, they're happy to show it off, and everyone is happy for them to have it. I heard a story. I don't know if it's true, but I heard a story that in China there's no such thing as um, tinting of windows. Because when you drive around in your car, you actually want everyone to see the fact that you are driving around in a lovely car. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's all about the display of affluence. Because they don't necessarily, the Chinese generally, spend a lot of money on their homes, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, in, I've, one of the things I note is that when you socialise in China, you always go out to a restaurant... Yes. You rarely, if ever, get invited back. Some of that is the big cities. It's incredibly expensive. Apartments are relatively small. Yep. So if you're socialising, you're going to go out. Yep. But the, the investment into luxury brands is for the things that you would be showing yes. in public rather than the things that you'd enjoy in private. Yes. And luckily, when you, you know, that happens in China, the um, eating out is so inexpensive. You know, to enjoy something really amazing. And, and it's also, that's part of showing 
um, showing your wealth as well is actually treating people to dinner and taking them out and making sure that they the spread that um, you put on is amazing and that people there's, there's always food left over because they want to make sure that you don't go hungry. So that's another way of. Um, well, it is. It, it's a sign of you know I care. Yeah. Because the I you know people saying oh why do they have you know twelve <laughs> course banquets but you know that is because one of the things in Chinese culture is to make sure that your guests are well fed. Yeah. And in fact, to the point that if you empty your plate, then they'll be wanting to put more food on yes. it because they're not sure that you've had enough. Yes. Yes, I think it's a trap for Westerners that right. were brought up to finish everything on your plate because yeah. as soon as you do, you'll be offered more food. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. like leave something on the plate because that actually sends a message to your host that you're well fed. Yes, yes, yeah. And that's um, I've been caught a few times. <laughs> um, the, the thing about the food as well is that I think in the West we're inclined to think of Chinese food as what's actually Cantonese food, yeah, right, yeah. and it's even a Western version of Cantonese food, yeah, isn't it? Oh, uh, it's it does not compare to the food in China. Food in China is spectacular, but also varies a lot. Yeah, from what, region to region. What, yeah, what yeah. what people would consider Ch- you know Chinese food here, uh, and yum cha, which is so popular in in Australia, yeah. But uh, it is actually relatively small, you know. That's a Cantonese, uh, uh, you know, which is I think yum cha means with tea. Yeah. You know, so you're having tea and food. Yeah. But um, when you go from uh, province to province, each province has its particular dishes. Yes. So it definitely has. So it has a style of food, but it also has a specialty, a couple mm. of specialty dishes. So it doesn't mean they're not available elsewhere, but um, when you do eat in China with people from that region, they will go to great lengths to make sure that you try their specialties, specialty dishes, which um, you know can sometimes be challenging to the Western palate. Um, <laughs> I've yeah. eaten some amazing things in China. There's um, a terrific um, TV series called A Bite of China, which is available on... Uh, YouTube, YouTube with yeah. uh, English subtitles, yes. where they just uh, they go around all these provinces. They'll pick a particular um, food type, like tofu, and they'll just show how from province to province the way soya bean and tofu is actually um, prepared and how it became a specialty of the region. Yeah, because it's amazing what they can do with soya beans. Oh, I was going to say, it, if yeah, the Chinese treatment of tofu. It, can result in some amazing dishes, whereas here, you know, tofu was thought of as a particularly vegan... Yeah, hippie. You know, yeah, hippie, <laughs> bland food, but, you know, you cook it with some of those sauces. I remember the first time I was offered stinky tofu. <laughs> and, I mean, it's literally called stinky tofu because it stinks, but it tastes amazing. Yeah. Like, as you're putting it to your mouth, you smell it and you go, oh, my God, how am I going to eat it? But as soon as you actually start chewing it, it's actually quite delicious yeah one of the things I is like, that what you mean by challenging to the palate or are you talking about eating particular t- uh, food that is not very acceptable yes it is i mean don't know how this is going to go down but i ate frog in um in china oh i ate it in paris yeah What's i was going to say i was going to say so, yeah, everyone yeah. eats it but in 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 paris it's called frog um in china it's called little chicken 
<laughs> so you get served a little chicken and I'm eating it going, gee, this chicken's God. really bony. That uh, that reinforces the thing where people go, oh, what did that taste like? Chicken? Chicken, that's right. <laughs> and it did taste like chicken. It just had a lot of bones in it, so I knew I wasn't eating chicken. Um, yeah, so things like what you eat, you know, and they eat insects. They, they make use of every single part of an, of an animal. Um, so there's a saying for the Chinese, uh, they'll eat everything on four legs except the table. Right. <laughs> they'll eat everything that flies through the air except the plane. plane. <laughs> and they'll um, eat everything that swims in the ocean except the submarine. Yeah. You know, so that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's very true. And actually, when, you, um, when you're asking somebody how they are in China, you don't say, hi, Darren, how was your day? You say, hi, Darren, have you eaten? Mm. You know, that is their, uh, their way of checking in with you now i've just remembered uh, because when you are when you've had enough when you've had your 18 courses <laughs> the what you say is you pat your tummy and go yeah i'm full to the brim yeah so you know, yeah so that's a good tip for people that's that don't right. want to be force fed for the next three hours yeah look that up on your um, body translate <laughs> but some of that is also culturally due to the fact that china has faced Famines and starvation. Yes. Yeah. And in recent times too. You know, we're talking in the last 50 years. Yeah. That's been such a big issue in China. It's hard for Westerners to actually appreciate that because, you know, you'd have to go back to the 1920s. Yeah. And in Australia, probably back to the 1800s for a time when people were facing starvation yeah. on a mass scale. And yet that's present in the Chinese culture. Well, that's right. It's recent memory, mm. you know, and it's, well, yeah, it's, that forms a lot of, um, a lot of ways that the Chinese approach, you know, saving money, eating food, um, making sure that you're prepping for the future. Um, yeah, so it, it does impact maybe not so much the younger generation, but definitely the older generation. So when you're looking at the way, you know, when people come to Australia to experience Australia, you know, you've got to look at different, um, generations and, and different groups of people and target your experiences accordingly. Yeah. Because there is a strong focus on uh, food, but also food safety, mm -hmm. food quality. You know, the part of uh, Chinese medicine is literally you are what you eat. Mm -hmm. You know, that your diet and the health of your diet, the quality of the food, the safety of the food yep. is so important. That's one of the things that makes Australia such a desirable one location to visit, yep. but also a location to, to receive their food. Yep, yep, to import from, yep. Yeah. And when you see the way that the Chinese live in terms of shopping for their everyday food, you know, they do use markets a lot. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of wet markets around, but also when they shop at supermarkets, they buy their food almost on a daily basis. Mm. We were in China um, staying there for a couple of months a few years ago and I went to the supermarket to shop for my family and I ended up having two trolleys because the trolleys are very small. I had two trolleys and I filled it to the brim. I had people following me around the supermarket wondering what I was doing because I was buying for the week. Yeah. And the Chinese don't do that, A, because they like to eat fresh, but also because they didn't have the refrigeration. And they don't have huge kitchens with huge freezers and fridges to store their food in, so they eat on a daily basis. Or they buy their food on a daily basis. Now, on that as a backdrop, you know, about the food, the culture, the... the this feels where like they've a food podcast. From. Yeah, well, <laughs> where they've come from. 
we've seen huge changes in the in last 10 years, in a very yeah. short period of time. You know, the one-child policy, the opening of China to the world. What is it that um, businesses in Australia need to be aware of when they are dealing with Chinese? Because obviously you've got to be aware of the history and the mm -hmm. culture, but they also see this rapid race to modernisation as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think modernisation is a really good word for it, not westernisation. Um, we often, you know, try and push the point that they don't want to be western, they want to be modern. Um, but it is happening at such a rapid rate that I think when businesses do engage with the Chinese, they need to understand that, um, you know, their risk modelling might have to be a little bit broader than it might be in other markets. You know, you really need to be able to shift and move with the way the market moves from a technology point of view, from a distribution point of view, from a legal point of view. Laws change in China overnight. Yeah. Um, you know, platforms get shut down overnight. They pop up overnight. Um, you know, import laws change. The, you know, the Daigo laws changed on the 1st of January, which has changed their business model substantially. So things change all the time in China. So don't be wedded to a particular strategy. Be flexible. Be very flexible. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and be prepared to try different things. You know, to um you know, don't try and force fit your Western strategy into the China market. Part of it isn't it because they're quite curious shoppers, yeah. right? Part of it is offering it and allowing them to almost discover how they want to use it. Mm -hmm. Because they will incorporate brands and products and even services in the way that they want yep. them. Yep, absolutely. I think a really good example of that is, you know, the whole um, red wine um, issue when, when the Chinese first started drinking wine. Yeah, and it's a massive potential market, but at first they started mixing it with Coke. Yeah. Because that's how it was palatable to them. And over time it now has become, um, you know, they're more discerning with their wine. Um, but initially, you kind of have to just let them you mm. know, drink it that way, you know, and they will get there. They will, you know, they will evolve because they do want to understand how to, you know, indulge in things like wine and, you know, um, haven't quite got to cheese yet, but, you know. Just, just on that, you reminded me, peachy or beer, it's very hard to, I, I know how to order a beer. I still can't work out how to get a cold beer no. <laughs> because uh, almost everything's served at room temperature yes. because that's traditionally to drink cold things was seen to be anti-healthy. Yes, You know, the yes. chilled drinks would bring on a cold yep. or bring on uh, some sort of infection yes. because of that. So, so one thing you do need to know when you go to China is you need to learn the term bing shui, which is cold water. Right. Yes, because if you ask for water, they will bring you hot water. Or warm. Yes, yeah. because that is good for the di digestion. And that makes sense. You know, so they drink, you know, they eat or they stand up after they eat. You know, they drink hot water to help the food move through your system. So I think what they do is quite sensible. It's just different to what mm. we do. Now, it's, it's interesting. Now, the other thing that's uh, exploded in China, and we mentioned it earlier with WeChat, but is social media. You know, for a country that uh, politically is a communist country, economically is quite capitalist mm -hmm. or socialist, let's say, um, there is 
a huge amount of interaction with people and a huge uptake with people with social media. Yep, yeah. Um, the, I think with China, even if you're a small platform, you can still do well because a small platform on China might have, I don't know, 50 million people using it on a daily basis. So, you know, WeChat's obviously got over a billion um, monthly users and Weibo is just now, you know, re-establishing itself with about 400,000, sorry, 400 million Mm. um, monthly users. So um, those platforms are massive, but you can still do well being a little platform. Um, But the, you know, the spread of of social media allows things like, you know, uh, Douyin or TikTok, which is known globally, to you know, explode overnight, you know, in two years. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Because uh, it was huge in China and now it's come to the West or I think it's, uh, it, they call it the international version. Global, the global version. Yeah, the, mm. the, the, the global version is TikTok, whereas the Chi- Chinese version. And, and, but the Chinese are using both. Yes, yeah. And they, you know, they use that daily. They use it constantly. If you sit on the train or the bus in China, you know, they people are just glued to their phones watching 15-second videos of cars reversing backwards or... Or know. what? Or preparing food <laughs> yes. or or uh, young women uh, miming to songs yeah, or whatever. Yeah, or putting on know. their makeup or... Yeah, so, um, you know, the thing about um, Douyin or TikTok is, is the consistent... Um, display of, of videos so you've got 15 seconds and then before you can go to choose your next one you don't choose it because the next one just appears so the algorithm just keeps serving you up video and you go well I've only got 15 seconds I'll sit through it until the next one comes so you know it's just a constant stream of and this video. is one of the things you know China is incredibly innovative especially with technology mm-hmm. because I remember when Diane came to the West as TikTok. The big thing that they pointed out is every single Western social media platform would collect data on your behaviour before they would then start serving things up to you. Whereas TikTok from day one would say, here's some things to look at and would this is for you. And then we'll just refine that from day one, which was a totally different way of thinking. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's done amazingly well. Um, and, and I think in its format, with the 15-second format, you can get away with doing stuff like that. You know, if you were serving up longer things that people had to sit through, then they possibly would, you know, skip through or jump out. But because it's only 15 seconds, they just stay. So I hear in your voice and in the way you talk that you are absolutely an ed- a sinophile. You yep. love China. I do. Where did that come from? Um, it was an evolution. It wasn't anything I said. I've always loved, um, you know, multicultural communications and understanding community-based um, connections. And China really was because we were running a business that had uh, tourism as its main um, industry. And, you know, the tourism industry really relies on China now. So as our clients got more and more reliant on China, we started doing more and more in the market Um I went over there. I loved it. Um, I love the Chinese um, approach to um, collectivity. So they, is that a word? Collectivism. So they want everyone's experience to be better than their own. So they everything that they do, so from leaving reviews about product, 
the intention is for everyone to have a better experience than they do individually. It is amazing, isn't it? Because they are so active in sharing. Yep. When they discover a new experience, a new product, a new something, they are so uh, enthusiastic in sharing that. And it's not show off. No. It's just literally, as you say, wanting everyone else. Yep. To join in and to experience it. So I, I think that's a really lovely way of living. And it would be so nice if um, other cultures could adapt to that. Um, and obviously the food, you know, gets you in there every time. Um, well, that's why, you know, when we started talking about food... I, <laughs> We're gone. <laughs> well, because it's amazing, it still amazes me how people in the West and Australia, because we are part of Asia, you yeah. know, Australia is part, more part of Asia than we are Europe. You know, we may have been settled uh, 200 years ago by Europeans, but... Uh, increasingly we're opening the country to people from the region, from all around the world. You know, multiculturalism, for whether people agree with it or not, is alive and well here. I'm just wondering what it is that we can learn more from, the, especially the Chinese, from your perspective, than we have so far. I think um, they are really, really hard workers. I think their um, attitude to work and to study may be um, slightly excessive sometimes, but, you know, they are um, they're hard workers and they respect hard work. So if you look at um, a company like Huawei, I know that's probably a bit on the nose at the moment, but, you know, they employ something like 6,000 PhD um, graduates just in their R&D department. Mm. You know, they, they really um, invest in people that invest in themselves. Um, I think they celebrate success, which I think is really nice. I think we can learn um, that if people work hard, you know, they um, deserve their, you know, accolades. Um, I think we can learn to cook like them. Um, oh, well, at <laughs> least an attitude towards food. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that they and have. sharing, yeah, yeah, sharing that. I think the the sharing culture, um, I think, is something that we can learn from. Um, also, the fact that I mean, I know a lot of um, Chinese aren't bilingual, but you know, their um, willingness to embrace, um, you know, or to try and understand and learn, you know, English is, you know, fantastic. Well, it's certainly um, probably easier learning. Um uh, English, English than it is learning Mandarin because, um, you know, I've managed to butcher Mandarin all the way through this yeah. and I'm sure my wife will kill me when she hears this. Yeah. But And also thank you for not picking up my incredibly <laughs> poor pronunciation. Um, but, look, it's been fascinating having this conversation. Uh, like you, I'm also uh, a big lover of uh, Chinese culture and Chinese, um, Chinese life. But uh, I'm just wondering... As a, as a final question, there is definitely signs of almost like splitting the world in two. We've got uh, the West with Trump, we've got Xi uh, in China, Chairman Xi. If it's going to split in two, which side of the fence do you think Australia should choose? Mm -hmm.